And I really love that instruction that Ryan gave us there at the end of that song, you know, just return to a simple childlike faith, a childlike trust of your father. It's pretty cool. You know, the truths of the gospel are not overly complicated when you really look at them. I mean, they're not easy, but intellectually, they're not difficult. However, they're really deep, and they're really profound, and they're meant to be plumbed. So one of the things that I've grown to appreciate about Luke, who is the author of this gospel of Luke, and who's been giving us this study of Jesus by the Spirit, he's really our teacher, not me. One of the things I've appreciated about him is that when he comes to one of these simple, conceptually difficult in practice, and really, really deep and profound truths, he doesn't just drop it on us and then expect us to immediately get it, to expect us to comprehensively understand it, to expect us to be able on our own to work out all of its many, many, many implications in our lives, in our families, and in our businesses, and so forth. But instead, he comes to us with these truth bombs, if you will, with these great, big, paradigm-shifting, change-your-life kind of deeply profound principles And then having given them to us, he kind of says, in effect, look, I'm not just going to give this to you and move on to the next one. I want to work it through with you. I want to explain it to you. I want to teach on this with you. I want to work out with you the implications of this in your life. It's awesome. And the reason I say that is because if you were with us last week, you know that he dropped one of those truth bombs on us. He came to us with a great, big, massively life-changing principle. Simple, conceptually, oh, but not in practice. And today, what he's going to do is stop. He's going to say, all right, I don't expect you to get this. And he is going to begin, and please don't miss this, a 10-chapter long explanation of it. 10 chapters of instruction on it. 10 chapters of teaching and illustration from various angles on it. 10 chapters. Guys, that's 41% of the Gospel of Luke on this one big idea. And I want to give you the idea as well. Going back to last week, Luke says this, Luke chapter 9, beginning of verse 23. Listen to this because it's very personal. It's simple conceptually, but not simple. It says, and Jesus said to who? Because it's really important. Jesus said to all, and I say that's important because it does make it personal. Jesus said to me. Jesus said to you. Jesus stood before all of humanity and said, listen, I'm going to make a statement that applies to everybody. Here you go. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would seek to follow me, if anyone would authentically be my disciple, really and truly, okay, well then here's what that involves. Let him deny himself. I want to pause there for a minute. I hope I don't put you to sleep with this, okay? In the Greek language that underlies the English language, you still with me? It makes it clear in the Greek language that that's a one-time decision. Let him deny himself. What that's saying is that by God's grace, through the power of His Spirit and community with other people and conviction over whatever it is that He's saying in your word, you reach, or His word, you reach that point consciously or subconsciously in your life, this singular moment in time in which you go, you know what? I'm going to stop playing around with Jesus. I'm going to stop pretending like I'm God and He's not. I'm going to stop trying to enlist Him in my program and I'm going to deny myself my program consciously, willfully, knowingly. So that I can be enlisted in his program, I'm going to get off the fence, I'm going to stop with the one foot in, one foot out stuff, I'm going to finally and definitively go all in on Jesus, make the call, that's the idea, and then what? Let him deny himself and then let him reaffirm that every single 
day. Let him take up his cross. It's the language of death daily and follow me, Jesus says, for whoever would save or preserve his life as he would define it, as he would construct it, as he would pursue it, as he would seek to live it, if I, Jesus, well, we're not running the show. Whoever would save that will lose it in the end when he dies. That's the idea. He has eternity in mind, guys, not our tiny little lives. And so he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake, whoever will make the call, whoever will get off the fence, whoever will go all in on me and then reaffirm that singular decision day by day by the power of God's Spirit, again, in accordance with His Word, in community with other people, and learn. It's a progressive deal. It's not like you walk into a room, you flip the light switch, and all the darkness disappears and light happens. It's more like you walk into the room, you hit the dimmer switch, and you slowly turn it up. You learn day by day by day to grow in the grace necessary to die more and more unto yourself and to live more and more unto Jesus. Okay, look, whoever would make the call and learn to do that, crucifying his passions, crucifying his plans, crucifying his agendas, crucifying more and more and more of himself so that he might or she might live for me? Well, let me tell you how it will end, Jesus says. He will save his life. What is he doing? He's doing a lot of things. But I mean, among other things, he's coming to us and he's taking all of humanity and he's saying, all right, I'm going to divide humanity into two categories. Those who live for themselves, those who live for me, learn to do that progressively. But they live for me. And I'm going to tell you in advance, and I love this about Jesus, no surprises. I'm going to tell you in advance how it will end for each group. If you live for yourself, and it's all about you, then when you die, what do you lose? You lose everything. Why? Because you lose your self. But Jesus is saying, ah, but if you make the call, if you learn to live for me, If your life is ultimately about me, if you're dying to you and living for me and growing in that grace, listen, when you die and enter into all of eternity, what do you lose? You lose nothing. What do you gain? Everything you've lived for. It's a challenging passage, but my goodness, what an amazing promise. It should excite us. So last week, Jesus, or Luke rather, came to us with that great big paradigm-shifting, change-your-life kind of principle, and today he's going to begin his 10-chapter-long explanation of it, and he begins it in Luke 9, beginning at verse 51, where Luke says this. He says, when the days drew near for Jesus to what? To be taken up. Very interesting language. He did what? He set his face to leave Galilee. And if you've been with us in this study, you know that the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry, at least as Luke has given it to us, has taken place in Galilee. What Jesus is now going to do is he's going to leave Galilee in the north and he's going to go to Jerusalem in the south. And in between, he's going to pass through Samaria. And it's going to take him 10 chapters to get to Jerusalem. That's the idea. So when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem where he will suffer and he will die and he will be buried and he will be raised. And then after that, he will be taken up. Get the idea? He's looking beyond the grave. He's looking beyond his resurrection even. He's looking to his ascension as he sets his face. And you can feel the resolve in that to head toward Jerusalem. He's looking to the day 
when he will resume heaven's throne, the throne that he left to come into this world to save us. And at least within the context of Luke's gospel, this journey from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, again, is 10 chapters long. 10 chapters that Luke uses to teach us personally what it looks like to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily and to follow him. And so here's the question that I want you to be asking yourself as we move through this together on Sundays, as you move through it in your personal worship week by week in preparation for Sunday, just make a list, man. What does it look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And keep your notes. Let's work it through together. So again, Luke says that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and then he sent messengers on ahead of him in this journey who went and who entered into a village of Samaritans. And Samaritans are a group of people who are like the inveterate enemies of the Jews, and they live right dead center in the middle of them. They've created all kinds of hostilities toward the Jews and vice versa. They don't like each other. Get that, okay? And Jesus, instead of going around Samaria, which was very typical for Jews in those days, decides to pass through Samaria. So his messengers entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for Jesus' arrival because Jesus is not traveling by himself or even with a small crowd. He's coming with a big crowd. That requires big accommodations, lots of food, lots of places to stay. You get the idea. He sends an advance team to get ready for him when he arrives. But the Samaritan people, at least in this first village that they went to, did not receive Jesus. And here's why, because his face was set toward Jerusalem and they hated Jerusalem and everything it stood for and anyone whose mission required him to go there there, they were not interested in. And now watch what James and particularly John does. When his disciples, James and John, saw that this Samaritan village had rejected the Lord, they said, you ready? Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Wow. Wow. I mean, if you did your personal worship this week, is that what you were expecting? (laughs) Like when you got to that, you know, did you go, good grief, you know, what is that? I mean, I can understand being a little put off, can't you? This is going to be a major inconvenience. We thought we had it all arranged and these guys are reject, but fire from heaven to consume them. Think about that. It's astonishing. Where does that come from? Do you run through the Bible? Where does that come from? It comes out of the life of Elijah, who, by the way, if you were with us last week, made an appearance in last week's passage alongside Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah and Jesus in the presence of James and John and then also of Peter talked about this trip to Jerusalem, talked about his suffering and death and burial and resurrection and looked to his ascension, no doubt as well. So these guys are coming into Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, and they've got Elijah on the brain, man. And what did Elijah do in his day? Well, Elijah called down fire from heaven to consume the prophets of Baal who had rejected the true and the living God. Well, who is Jesus? Peter's just proclaimed him only a chapter or so ago to be the Son of God himself. And so when they hit this town, James and John are like, hey, maybe these guys deserve the same treatment. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them and consume them? And notice what Jesus does, because there is so much to be learned about following Christ from his rebukes. Verse 55, it says, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. He rebukes James, he rebukes John, and then Luke says that they all went on, you know, to another village in Samaria, I think is the idea. But that's not the end of the story. 
It's not the end of the story for the Samaritans. I don't think it's the end of the story for this particular village who rejected Jesus in Samaria. And it's certainly not the end of the story for John and his association with Samaritans. And I say that because Luke isn't the only book that Luke wrote. He also wrote the book of Acts. And when you get into the book of Acts, you see that after this 10-chapter journey, and after Jesus' suffering, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and after which, what did Jesus do? He sent His Spirit down upon His disciples in the upper room. And how did the Spirit manifest Himself physically to the disciples? They knew He was there because they experienced Him as a rushing wind and as tongues of what? Fire. Fire from heaven. That's curious. It's interesting, isn't it? What does John do? Well, in chapter 8, Philip goes into Samaria. I think the implication is to this village as well as many others. And he preaches the gospel, and now far from rejecting Jesus, the Spirit is just rolling through Samaria. They're coming village by village by village to faith in Christ, and so much so like that the apostles are a little alarmed, like the Jewish Christians are going, hey, what, wait a minute, you mean the Samaritans are actually coming to faith in Jesus? I mean, they rejected Jesus. We were just there a couple of months ago. And and so they send Peter and John to go investigate. And John prays for the Samaritans. I think in this village... And here's what happens. Instead of fire from heaven falling upon them in judgment, the fire of God's Spirit, rushing wind and tongues of flame, manifests Himself upon those people then. You see the difference? What a difference between John as we find him today and John, okay, after this 10-chapter journey and after Christ's sufferings, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Discipleship transforms us. And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, Tom, that's moderately interesting. And maybe a little bit helpful, but could you clear it up for me a little bit? Like, what am I supposed to learn from this? Because I'm making a list. I think, first of all, you ought to learn, at the very least, that this teaches you that you'll face rejection as you follow Jesus. As you follow the life of Christ, which we've been doing all year, look, He faces rejection at every turn. And then he comes to us later in his scriptures and he says, hey, here's the thing. If the world rejected me, yeah, don't expect any better. So what do you do with a principle like that? You sit down on an afternoon like, you know, maybe this one, and, and you begin to survey your life. If following Jesus means that at least occasionally I'll face rejection. Have I ever faced rejection? When was the last time I faced rejection? When was the last time somebody rolled their eyes at me? When was the last time somebody thought I had lost my mind? When was the last time somebody just didn't want anything to do with me after they found out that I'm a believer? When was the last time anything that smells like rejection happened in my life? Because if you're following the Lord, it will occur So I think it teaches us that, but then secondly, I think it teaches us as well that we need to be gracious toward those who reject us and despise us and hate us and maybe even abuse us. And here's why, because the gospel should give rise to a hope in our hearts that even those who have rejected Christ and rejected us may yet well receive them. Receive Him. Receive us. That these people who are our enemies through the gospel and through its power can become our brothers and sisters in the Lord. You see, that should issue forth in our life like we should be blessers and not cursers even toward our enemy. We should be those who are seeking to bring life in various forms to our enemies as opposed 
to death in various forms. But here's what that requires. It requires that we deny ourselves, that we make the call, that we get off the fence, that we realize life is not about us and that life is about him and that we get up every single morning and crucify whatever it is, our need for vengeance, our, our desire for satisfaction of our need to be proven right, whatever it is, popularity, comfort, acceptance, whatever it is that stands between us and living like that. Jesus rebukes them for this desire to call down fire from heaven. And look, that's costly for us as you play that out in your life. But it's not nearly as costly as it was for him. Good grief, he goes to Jerusalem and endures the fiery judgment, if you will, of God on the cross for those Samaritans, for John, for James, for Peter, for me, for you, for everyone who has faith in him. So after he rebukes them then, In verse 57, we read that as they were going along the road to some other Samaritan village that would hopefully receive them is the point, someone from the crowd, and you're like, what crowd? The crowd that's already disciples of Jesus? The crowd that he's walking with, that he's looking for hotel rooms for? No. As Jesus went, wherever he went at this point in his ministry, crowds of people from towns and villages and cities would line the streets to get a look at this Jesus. He was very famous, very controversial. He did miracles. So folks would pour out of their homes and businesses and schools and whatever and line the roads and their villages that Jesus would then walk through. Someone in that crowd is the idea, said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, which is what we're talking about. What does it mean to do that? So what Jesus says is instructive. He says, really, all right, well, let's test that. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. He's saying all the creatures of this world have a stable, predictable place in which to live. Basic necessity of life kind of a thing. Not comfort, not, you know, they don't all live in palaces, but stable, predictable, basic necessity of life. They all have a place to live. But as we just noticed, Jesus is saying at the last Samaritan village that we went to that rejected us, okay, the Son of Man, that's Christ, has nowhere to lay his head. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, life for me as part of this mission at times is not stable. It's not predictable. I don't know where I'm going to sleep sometimes. I'm denied even the basic necessities of life. Jesus, in fact, is denied even his life, is he not? And what he's saying is, that's not just true for me. It's true for everyone who follows me. He's saying to the guy in the crowd, hey, you see the crowd of disciples who are with me right now? They don't know where they're staying tonight either. We don't know where we're having dinner, like all of us. You're like, all right, so what do I put on my list now? What goes down on the list? I mean, what am I supposed to learn from that about what it means to follow Jesus? I think it teaches you that following Jesus means being willing to be deprived. Deprived of comfort. Deprived of reputation. Deprived of money. Deprived of time. Deprived of energy. Deprived of all the things that you have to crucify. Deprived if necessary, even of the basic necessities of life. I'm going to go one further, deprived even of life itself. The disciples almost universally suffered torturous deaths defending the gospel. And millions of of Christians have followed. We don't even think in that category, do we? Until we turn on the news. And then we see it happening today, now in our time. All right, putting it differently, I think it teaches us that Jesus is first. That's it. 
And it's even the word now that he uses. Jesus says in verse 59, or Luke tells us, he says, to another, meaning another person in that crowd that came out to see Jesus and his disciples, Jesus said, personal invitation, follow me, which incidentally is what he says to all of us as well. But he, this would-be follower of Jesus, said, Lord, um, okay, but first, hear the word, let me go and bury my father, which is kind of a big deal. Some of you have experienced that. Your father dies, and what do you do? There's not a meeting in the world you will not cancel. It's not a vacation plan that does not get changed. And nobody, like, argue. oh, man, we've had this meeting scheduled for three months. I can't believe you're going to go bury your father. And it's like, hey, you know what? Got it. Do what you need to do. If you think it's a big deal in our culture, just travel back to the first century. This would have been an insult to his entire village. Everybody would have been like, what? It's unthinkable that you would not first go bury your father, but it's not unthinkable to Jesus. Jesus is saying in some sense, let me give you the superlative example. Thank you so much for bringing that up. That's important, isn't it? It's not as important as me. Jesus said to this man, leave the dead to bury their own dead. You're like, tell me how that happens. trying to work that one out this week, Tom. That doesn't make any sense. I think what makes sense of it is he's saying, leave the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. I think he's saying, look, let people who don't yet get me, let people who don't understand that I am to be prioritized above everything else and everyone else tend to less important things like that. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then Luke says that yet another person in that crowd said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me, here it is again, first, say farewell to those at my home. Also a reasonable request. I mean, if you never came home, you know, what in the world? Everybody's going to be worried about you. What happened? Were you abducted? Did you fall in a well? Did you say, you know, I mean, like what happened to my son or daughter? And it's not like they had cell phones. Hey, I'm following Jesus. It's 10 chapters in the gospel of Luke. So I'm guessing it's going to take a while. Don't worry about me. It's not it. Let me just go tell him what I'm doing, and then I'll catch up, I think is kind of what this guy is saying. But he, he too, uses that word first. And Jesus then uses an agricultural analogy that they would have gotten because they were agriculturally inclined. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And why is that? Because the plows were pulled by horses and oxen. And unless you paid 100% of your attention to exactly where it is you were getting pulled, you don't look to the left, you don't look to the right, you don't look behind you, you see we get the idea? Unless you do that, you don't cut straight furrows in your field, and you very well may miss a rock that breaks your plow. You focus first on me. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Look, following Jesus means putting people first, or putting Jesus first, rather, above everyone else and above everything else. And here's what that requires. It it, it requires you to make the call. Who am I going to live for? To get off the fence. And then to back that up daily by crucifying your desires to engage in things that will distract you. that will pull you away. Other things, other people. There is a radical reprioritizing of our lives that Jesus is calling us to, and following Him means engaging in that. 
It means learning how to do that. And then, of course, and I'm sure you caught this, following Jesus means proclaiming his gospel in word and deed. So the guy says, hey, let me go bury my dad. And Jesus says, nope, let the dead bury the dead, and here's what you need to do. You need to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then in case we missed that, he backs up that idea in chapter 10 in the first 20 verses, and you should have studied through that in your personal worship. But you find a story there in which Jesus now sends out another advanced team, this time of 72 people, and he empowers them with the Spirit to do miraculous things. So preach the gospel, oh, and heal the sick, you know, just like I, Jesus, do. Can you imagine that kind of power? Cast out demons. I mean, they go out and manifest the power of the Lord miraculously, and they all come back in at the end of the story, praising God and rejoicing at all that they had seen and at all that they had done, all the power of Christ that had been manifested through their lives and these villages and towns and whatnot that they had gone into and performed all of these miraculous works. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. It's fascinating. That seems like something to rejoice over, and I'm not saying it isn't. But he's reprioritizing things. Radically. It says in verse 20, Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, that you've done all these miraculous things and the power that I've given you, but instead rejoice, bottom line, that your names are written in heaven. You're like Tom last time. So I've got my pen. What does this teach me about following Jesus? I think it teaches you and it teaches me what it is that we're really to rejoice in. And then, by extension, what we're not. What brings you joy? What makes you miserable? Something, isn't it? It's telling us overtly to value and to rejoice in the things of heaven and particularly that that's where our name is written in the indelible blood of Jesus. Nobody can cross you off the list. Nobody can scrub it off, you know, when there's no white out that covers this. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And maybe it's just me, but I get depressed over a lot of things that I feel deprived of at times. And some of them are significant. They're not funny things. Jesus is calling us beyond this life. It's with his ascension in mind that he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And he's saying, guys, your life, yeah, it's about that long. Eternity, it's endless. Is your name in the book of life through faith in me? Because if it is... I sympathize with your sufferings. I am the man of sorrows. I get it. But rejoice. Rejoice for what awaits you. That's what Christ looks forward to. It was for the joy set before Him that He endured the cross, we're told, in a different place in the Bible. The joy set before Him. It sure wasn't the joy of the grind to the end of His life. It was the joy of knowing that for all of eternity, He would share it with you. It's a great joy that He wants you to share in. But that's here's what that requires. You've got to make the call. You've got to get off the fence. The one foot one in, one foot out stuff, that's got to end. You've got to decide who your life is about. And by the power of God, commit your life to Him. And then it requires you and me to get up every day
and to crucify our desires for the things of this earth in favor of the things of heaven. All right, so let me ask you, have you made the call? Question number one. Have you gotten off the fence or are you pretty squarely sitting on it, which has got to be uncomfortable, right? I mean, that's just, there's nothing about that image that sounds like a good idea. Are you playing around with Jesus or have you stopped? Are you God or is he? You trying to enlist him in your program? Are you saying no to your program so that you can learn how to be enlisted in his? And if you have, all right, well, then are you learning to crucify your desires? It's a learned deal, again, by the Spirit in accordance with the Word and with some really good Christian friends who can help you to do this because it's, it can be difficult to do these things. Are you learning to crucify your desires, the ones that would pull you away from your ability to live for Him, desire for comfort, desire for vengeance. So oh, that's a hard one to put to death, is it not? Desire to be right, not just in your mind, but like in everyone else's. Desire upon desire. Have you learned to be gracious toward your enemies? You know who they are. You don't need to make a list of that, do you? I don't need to say, well, now let's take some time and you can write down the names of your enemies. You don't need to write that down. Got those pretty well down, buddy. Do you actually believe that the power of the gospel is such that that person, whoever that person may be, could, in fact, become your brother or sister in Christ? Happened with the Samaritans. Transformed John. Are you a blesser or a curser? Do you bring life or death to your enemies? Fourthly, do you value Jesus above everything and everyone else? It is a radical reprioritizing. It really, it really is. And then lastly, what do you rejoice in? The things of heaven or the things of earth? Because the deal is that Luke hasn't just given us this great big paradigm-shifting, change-your-life kind of principle. Now, he's begun a 10-chapter journey with every one of us in which he's hoping to teach us what it looks like to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and truly and authentically to follow Jesus. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for the sake of Jesus in the end and for all of eternity will save it. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, which is precious and it is living and it is active. It is sharper as it itself testifies than any two-edged sword. It does surgery to our minds and to our hearts and to our lives that it might heal us that it might bring us life. Lord, we thank you for the simple truths of your gospel, and we thank you for their depth, for how profound and transformational they are. We thank you for promises of life. Give us faith to embrace them. Lord, awaken our hearts and our minds to the brevity of this life, to the selfishness of our own souls, to our tendencies to live for ourselves and to try to manufacture a life in which everyone else around us, including you, lives for us as well. 
Oh, we think that's what we want until it proves itself empty. Lord, let us lose our lives in the one who came to save us, not just from our sin, but from ourselves. To deliver us, not just from our wickedness, but to deliver us from our foolishness and short-sightedness and selfishness and so many other things. Lord, deliver us from the foolishness that says that we can design a life for us better and more meaningful and more purposeful and more joyful and more fulfilling and more satisfying than the one that you can design for us. And let us submit ourselves to the one who in love laid down his life enduring the fiery judgment of the cross for us. We, Lord, were Samaritans and you have made us your people. Do these things, we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.